Discalculia, a love story of epic miscalculation from poet and essayist Camon Felix, is a powerful and brilliant memoir that serves as a masterclass in investigating self when the heart and mind are reeling from the pain of broken and scattered connections. Felix braids her stories of a lost love, a complicated relationship with her mother, and her late diagnosis of dyscalculia and bipolarism to reveal the power of reclaiming self through healing. Camon joined us in conversation to discuss her personal journey in the systems built that deliberately dismissed the pain of Black women. We talk about advocating for a better education and mental health system for young Black children and what it took for her to get to a place of self-love and acceptance to create a fuller life for herself. Stay with us for another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzy'sbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. We are your hosts. My name is Denny. And I am Veronica. And today we are joined by our April anniversary book of the month author, none other than the remarkable Kamon Felix. So here's a little info. Kamon Felix, poet and essayist, is the author of Dyscalculia, a love story of epic miscalculation, and Build Yourself a Boat which was long listed for the 2019 National Book Award in Poetry, shortlisted for the Penn Open Book Awards, and shortlisted for the Lambda Literary Awards. Her poetry has appeared or is forthcoming in Academy of American Poets, Harvard Review, Lit Hub, The New Yorker, Penn America, Poetry Magazine, Freedman's, and elsewhere. Welcome to the show, Kamal. How are you doing today? I'm doing so well. Thank you for asking. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we have been stalking this book ever since <laughs> it appeared into, the, the, into the world that this book was coming. And the premise just like tugged at my heartstrings. And mm -hmm. I was like, okay, this is different. We got to see what this book is all about. And it blew our minds. I want to say thank you. Thank you. I, I'm going to really, I have this bad habit of like wanting to share everything to anybody who writes a memoir because I'm just like, my God, I want to talk to y'all. Y'all do the work that needs to be done and you really did it within this book. And we are so grateful to have you on the show to talk about um, this wonderful uh, memoir. But before we get started into talking about this book, we have asked to see if you wouldn't mind sharing an excerpt from, from Dyscalculia. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, give me one second to pull it up. While you're pulling, pulling that up, I just want to let you know, Denny is going to uh, ask you some, some fun hot seat questions. So we're going to do that first, and then we'll have you read. Okay, cool. I'm ready. Okay. So we'll, we'll we'll start um we'll start with a little hot seat question. Uh what good trouble have you been in recently? Oh, good trouble. Uh playing in nature feels like good trouble. I think that qualifies. Uh, my fiance and I we go to a park near us. Um it's in a national park called the Arboretum. Um and they have these beautiful trees and we've been climbing them. We're not sure if we are allowed to do this. Like no one has told us not to, but it feels like something we sh we would be restricted from doing, but we're doing it anyway. And like going on paths that aren't necessarily already carved out and putting sticks in the mud and yeah, getting in a lot of trouble at the park. That's what's up. I feel like the trees love that getting that attention. Yeah. Climbing. That that's a good feeling. We had a writer 
his name is Ron Grady, and he is a nature preschool teacher. And he wrote a book about the color brown. And oh wow, he would be in love with all, everything you just said. That would yeah. be right up his alley. Teaching children to do that, go out and have fun in the nature. Also, yeah. um, I was we were reflecting about your book in nature. We were. <laughs> uh-huh. in- yeah, we were in the nature preserve, walking around and like, you know, digesting this book. So that's so cool. We connected in that. That's so wild. Um, this is a question from a friend. Um, <laughs> happy eclipse and pre-shadow Mercury, Zeton. How are you handling the changes in the sky so far? Oof. Um, you know, Mercury season, Mercury retrograde season either goes really well for me or it goes really badly. And this feels like a time where it's going to go well. I've been having some like intellectual breakthroughs and some emotional breakthroughs, and I'm feeling really confident and excited and not as down as I mostly usually feel. Um, So I'm I'm feeling, I'm feeling okay. I'm pretty hopeful for this retrograde. I like that. I like that. Some hope. Um, (laughs) So they say that you don't start living your full sun sign until you are 30. Do you feel like you have fully stepped into your full Capricorn self or that or that you feel like you have always known who you were? I'm definitely stepping into my full Capricorn self since I've turned 30, which I think a lot of people misunderstand Capricorns and think that they are exclusively about work. Um, but Capricorns have two sides. One side they are really invested in excellence, right? In like doing the thing that they do really well. But the other side is that they also really like to relax their earth signs. They really like to be brought back down to earth. So they really are about balance and about like achieving an equilibrium. And I feel like I'm getting closer to that equal sort of like well-balanced place. I like that. I don't I don't uh, know a lot of Capricorn. So that's always one of those signs where I'm really curious to really like fully get to know. Like I know the infamous ones like mm-hmm. you, Ray and Michelle Obama. Like, I, you know, like they, those are the ones where I'm like, OK, Capricorns, they have yeah. that life like they're showing you how to how to do it. Yeah. And, well, so, you know, it's like I have always wondered about that so I'm glad to know that you're you're feeling like you're starting to really step more into what it is to be a Capricorn yeah it's been fun I like it so um you know as a celebrity yourself can you uh, who is your celebrity crush Ooh, you know very random but (laughs) I am gonna let you down because I don't really crush on celebrities I don't really it's just really hard. I'm attracted to personalities. I wanted to ask. Really? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm really attracted to like personalities and like the way that people like, you know, when you meet a person and you like the way that they walk and you're really interested in like their, their weird quirks, like the the thing that they repeatedly say, like, yeah, or or so, or, you know, those kinds of things. Like that's what I'm attracted to. And celebrities are like just way too distant to for me to access, to, to know if I would like them, even as friends. Yeah. I don't think I have any celebrity crushes. I'll say my like, if I could have a friend crush, my celebrity friend crush is Regina King. I think she's yeah. a Capricorn too. And I know she's going through a tough time right now, so I wouldn't expect anything at all. But <laughs> <laughs> but if I if I ever got the chance to be friends with her, I would just want to like sit near her and watch her go through life. Mm-hmm. I feel like it would teach me a lot. Mm-hmm. Regina I want to be Regina King's friend too. I yeah. just want to talk all the time. I yeah, her. right? Yes. So now, um, you know, we come into the point of the show. If before you read an excerpt from this book, if you can tell our listeners, um, what is what is this memoir all about? Uh, It's hard to explain what it's all about in a short period of time. But what I've been saying about it is that it is a book about a heartbreak that led to a life changing diagnosis. Um, and it's not just about one heartbreak, but about a series of heartbreaks that all leads up to this culminating realization 
And it's all tied to, you know, self-realization and self-affirmation and being able to, you know, identify oneself in, in the mirror after something traumatic happens. But thank you for sharing that with us. Will you go ahead and read an excerpt from your from dyscalculia? Sure. Sometimes a benign heartbreak is meaningful. Sometimes it sums up to nothing. Who's to know? And does it matter? It's the abacus of your growth, how many inches up from the ground you've gotten charted. At the coffee shop, an interested man observes me in silence, then asks me what I'm working on when I take my headphones off to thank the waiter. He's kind of my type, but I'm weary now, and he thinks I don't see him, but I do. I tell him I'm working on a book. Oh yeah, a book? He croons, smiling like I made a joke. What's your book about? Heartbreak, romance, that kind of stuff. That's it, he asks? Heartbreak? That's it, I say, just heartbreak. Black girls get to write about benign heartbreak too. Proud and saccharine and pathetic. When you're healed, you tell the story differently. I loved a man so hard it made me sick. I loved myself so hard I brought her back. Thank you so much. Oh, That's so definitely good. one of my favorite parts of the book. And I oh, think yay. that right there, like, is a good synopsis of what your story is all about. This beautiful memoir. Yeah. Um, you know, so like you were talking about, you know, everybody has a heartache, heartbreak at some point in their life. You know, when writing about, you know, failed relationships or romant failed romantic relationships and who takes responsibility for it. How was the process of allowing unbiased exploration, you know, beyond your own feelings when revisiting these experiences so you can translate them into the page? So one thing about me as a writer, as a general sort of practice in my practice is that I don't really write about anything traumatic until I've processed it either with therapy or, you know, meditation, whenever I can actually do it and access it because meditation is really hard. Um, so when I was writing this book, I had already sort of moved past some of the hard parts, some of the hard emotional parts, the hard parts about recounting a story. In some ways, my goal was to write something that could feel like fiction. Because writing it in a lot of ways felt like writing fiction to me, even though it's a completely true story and, you know, all the dialogue is real, nothing is made up. It felt so foreign from who, who I was at the time that I was like finishing it up. It felt so foreign from that, that it was really hard to um identify with it in a negative way. I could only really see it positively because I had spent so much time away from it and really gotten to process all of the feelings that I wind up talking about in the book. So I just felt proud and like excited that something that I had gotten, an adversity that I had sort of like managed that I was able to sort of manage it so well that it could become this other thing. And it didn't have to stay being the traumatic thing that broke my heart, the traumatic things that broke my heart. They could become something ineffable that can't really be described or understood and be beautiful in that way. Mm -hmm. So you you said that you wanted something to, that would could feel like fiction and I'm really I really love the way that you've written this book so I really want to talk to you about the form mm -hmm. of the story your memoir reads as if it is poetry and a braided narrative had a baby and this mm -hmm. is it, right and you use math to play with memory as you retell the story of your breakup your uh, bipolar diagnosis and your relationship with your mother. Speak to us about how this way, this form of sharing your story came to be for you. That's a great question. Yeah. So 
when I when I started writing Dyscalculia, it was very much about it began as being about that central heartbreak, the heartbreak that occurred after a romantic loss. <clears throat> and as I kept writing it, let me take a step back. Part of what I love about writing is that because it doesn't have to happen in a linear way, when you look back at what you're actually putting down on the page, it tells you a different story, not just about how you're feeling, but about what you actually wrote, right? So you can write one thing and then look back at it and realize, oh, it's actually this other thing. And the most important thing is that when you look back at it, it you ask new questions, right? You're like, oh, well, if I felt this way, then I wonder what it looked like when this thing happened or how did that relate to this thing? So as I'm writing and I'm just doing the work of asking the questions that move the narrative along, I'm like, oh, some of these answers are back in time, right? Some of these answers are in the future. So realizing that because the questions were being answered in this nonlinear fashion, but also that all of the answers tied back into each other, it felt like I needed to represent it in its sort of like raw composition on the page in that way. To do it in any other way felt dishonest. I tried a bunch of other ways and this was the only way that felt authentic because out of one question was born another question and the answer to that question is back in time. Going back in time is what moved me forward, right? Being able to do that math, all of that is sort of like fundamental to how it why it exists the way it exists and fundamental to the to the story to the telling of the story so yeah it once i realized that i was sort of time traveling and that i was like unpacking all of these other boxes i just started to braid them right and like figure out how they hook together and like realizing that there were stories in my childhood that directly mirrored the stories in the future and that those stories in the future were identical to stories that came before just like that loop in t that looping felt so critical for me to preserve yeah what does the time traveling do in regards to memory for you mm -hmm. um, when you go back and you're revisiting things that you know you had because sometimes we create these tapes in our minds of like this is how that moment went mm -hmm. and then sometimes you will find yourself going back and you're like oh, hold God. up there was a detail that I missed talk to me about that that time travel and memory connection for you yeah a lot of that happens in understanding my bipolar diagnosis right so by the time I was finishing up dyscalculia, I had been diagnosed for about three years. And in the process of writing, there were a bunch of things that happened or that I was reflecting on where I would look where previously when I thought about them, I was like, you know, this person did me really wrong or, um, you know, I, I don't know why this thing happened or I don't understand why people treat me this way. And then I look back in retrospect and I'm like, oh, those were bipolar symptoms that I'm displaying, right? Like, these actions are connected to this chemical imbalance in my brain. And I really felt like I was time traveling then because I'm going to try to explain this the best that I can, but there's something about revisiting those events from the past, looking at them through this different lens and medicating at the same time, right? It almost feels like I'm treating that event or treating that wound with this new self that is like willing to medicate and willing to heal. So that time travel felt really important in understanding how I wanted to talk about bipolar disorder in this book. And time traveling also happened in trying to understand what relevance my mom was going to play in this narrative, right? At first, I wasn't totally sure why she was showing up, but by the end, I realized that she was there to be what she has been, which is the most um, the most sort of reliable figure in the narrative, right? The person who you can anticipate will be there, at least in the book, and the person who like likely wants to be there the most. And I needed to time travel in that relationship to sort of understand that that is the figure 
that is showing up in this book and that that's how she shows up and why she needed to be there. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning this because this leads me to my next question. Recently, we interviewed uh, Fatima Asghar about their novel, When We Were Sisters, in which there are three sisters who all have names in the books, uh, but everyone else is left nameless. You only know them by either uncle or or auntie or father, and that's it. No Mm -hmm. one has a name. And they wanted to distinguish the relationship and how that play into different moments within these children's lives. And so it made me think about your book when you choose to name people by just an initial Mm -hmm. and then your mom is, is spoken Mm -hmm. throughout the book. But for me, like mom, like you don't call your your mama by their first name, you Mm -hmm. know, it's gotta be funny. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it it feels like that's the name because Mm -hmm. is the name of your mom. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about choosing to uh, introduce these characters within the within your story with just their initial and not mm-hmm. giving us the full name? Yeah, um, I really wanted to establish a hierarchy of characters, right? Everybody couldn't have the same importance because that is not how at least my life works. Like not every person in my life has the same level of importance, right? as callous as that may sound. And so when I was writing the book, I was like, how do I, first of all, most importantly, make it clear to my readers that this person who broke my heart in the romantic situation, that like this heartbreak is not necessarily the most significant, right? Like it is the biggest and it takes up the most space because that's what that's what it's like to get your heart broken in your 20s, right? Or any age in general, but especially in your 20s. But to reduce them to S or X instead of listing out their entire name was not necessarily to protect them because their name is very common, but literally to say like, this is, this this broke my heart and this person was important but over time is less important, like an indicator, a small one for them to see that. And the other part too was just, I thought it could be an interesting way to like tell the reader where to look. So like when mom comes up, right? I feel like you know that there's duality there that I'm talking about the past and the present. Whereas when I'm talking about X or J or any of the other single letter characters that they are just of one moment and that they don't try time travel with me. So, yeah. Yeah. And that really feels like within that time travel that maybe in the very beginning, when you're looking back at that, that memory and initially like their full name is there, Mm -hmm. you know, like when you're retelling the story Mm -hmm. to your friend or your therapist and you're saying this name and then sooner or later, you're like, you know, Maybe it might mm-hmm. go to a nickname and then eventually mm-hmm. get to that one letter. Mm-hmm. So I like that because when we were talking to uh, Fatima, she was saying how she wanted the reader to feel as if when you are reading about these characters, that you have the ability to transplant someone that you may have yourself dealt with in this manner and put them in that place of mm-hmm. that person in the book. Mm-hmm. And when I was reading your memoir, that's what I was feeling the same way of like, yes, D did it. I know, you know, like Mm -hmm. I've had that experience of like going through those moments in my twenties and I was just like, yeah. And (laughs) particularly with X, like the, the, that person's name doesn't actually start with X. They're X because they should, you should be able to replace that name with any name, right? You can plug in any name and it would work. Yeah. Um, so that's spot on to what you're saying. Also, going back to the time traveling aspect, I really loved it because talking about trauma is very difficult. And I think the time traveling aspect of it is the same way how people deal with trauma or mm-hmm. what people would retell trauma. It doesn't happen all at once every mm-hmm. single time. Exactly. To the people that have experience trauma it comes out in spurts so Mm -hmm. I you know it's it it helped me 
read the book and I'm I'm sure also other people would you know appreciate it because you know for people that have been traumatized or writing or coming from that part it you know it expresses a lot of humanity in mm -hmm. in experiencing them and not you know just oh this is what's going to have this is what happened to me and almost kind of like you know the story is about everything else but them mm -hmm. but the story is about you and what you're experiencing Mm -hmm. and projecting it to the world for the people to see mm -hmm. so I think the time traveling aspect really really worked very very well thank you I really, really like it <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, when allowing your yourself to you know open up and having to to be in a relationship whether mm -hmm. romantically or or not um with somebody else what does that undertaking look like for you because I have trust issues I'm for I'm, <laughs> say that you know you know but like how how does that unfold for you when you're going through that process it's very it's very tough for me I think romantically it kind of happens where it does not right like with my partner now we met and I automatically opened up to them and we've been together ever since but in the four years before I met them I was dating plenty of people and never felt vulnerable enough to actually open up. So I think that to me is evidence that like it doesn't come very easily for me. And my biggest sort of wall is being able to um, to be vulnerable. I just don't like to do that. It feels like a level of emotional labor that <laughs> I don't always have the capacity for. But I think with like friendship in particular, my biggest block is one, being vulnerable. And then the second biggest is trusting my own understanding of the relationship and trusting my understanding of the of of how that person feels about me or perce perceives me I really struggle to understand how a person may feel about me um and I need a lot of confirmation which is not like normal in platonic relationships so I tend to wind up sticking to myself and being pretty uh, pretty sort of like self-satisfied because it's no one you know I don't want to have to ask someone like hey do you actually like what in what way do you like me like do you want to be best friends or do you just want to like get coffee once a month like trying to navigate those distinctions is too hard for me so I just hang out with myself <laughs> I I have five friends so I I identify <laughs> yeah <laughs> like even Veronica was telling me, like, you know, I, I present very non-interested and mm -hmm. like stoic. <laughs> me too, me too. You know, so like the resting bitch face was invented before I mean, <laughs> the resting bitch face before it was invented. So, you know, like just trying to feel out your novel and, you know, your memoir. I was like, you know, real like how like, you know, the giving up of the self. Mm -hmm. that, is very that is very difficult for me mm -hmm. yeah for sure so I want to I want to go to the start of the of your story in this relationship with person x mm -hmm. um and there is a part where you um find out that he has been uh cheating with someone else mm -hmm. in the relationship um and in it, you you talk about when you when you woke him up after reading the text message from the woman, um, and you asked him about it. You could see in his eyes they were not tethered to you. I love that line so mm -hmm. much. Um, and the telltale signs of a lie is most recognizable in those that we love, even when we try to ignore them. Uh, the poker player will always show their hand, and the dealer will always have the instinct to know when the cheating began, but must decide for themselves when to call them out. What was it about this moment, despite having the instinctual feeling prior, that was the day to call out his hand? <laughs> I think when you know, but it's not being confirmed, there's plenty of room to lie to yourself. You can be like, oh, maybe I'm just overthinking it. I'm, you know, I'm just insecure, whatever, whatever. You can make up any lie that you need to, to convince yourself that the truth is not actually the truth. But when you get that confirmation, 
right? When you see it, you have one of two choices. You can pretend that you didn't see it or you can see it. And I feel like I am not the kind of person who can pretend that I don't see it. I don't have the strength to summon that level of delusion. I can't do that. And I knew that I wouldn't be able to be normal. And at that point, like, what's the point? If if I know that I'm going to be destroyed and crying and upset and then we might we might as well both be destroyed because you're gonna know and I'm not gonna keep it from you why I don't owe you that I don't owe it to keep it from you in fact I owe you the opposite so yeah I just I was like I'm not gonna be I'm not gonna pretend that I don't see this so today has to be the day I like that because you know so many times people will choose not to see it and just continue Mm -hmm. on you know, and live blindly. And it's just one of those things of what are you doing to yourself? What are mm-hmm. you allowing yourself to hold on and carry that isn't mm-hmm. yours to hold nor carry? Yeah. Glad that yeah. you uh, you chose to share that part of the story. This this memoir, it feels uh, like it was the first time where I could really focus on the writer without the outside people finding their way to steal the spotlight from you, the memoirist. Uh, how were you able to find the center of the story and stand in it the entire time? Mm. A good question. And I ask that because sometimes, you know, the, the outside people mm-hmm. get more shine and, you know, the conversation can lead towards there. And often sometimes people can get lost in what was the real still the real story, which is the person who's writing it. So mm-hmm. I'm just curious as to how you were able to to be able to center that story within you. I think that I'm I the, the thing that I most wanted to accomplish with this book is to make a claim that black girls could and should have the space to write saccharine poetry to write almost almost because it's almost just about nothing almost just right and to make that claim I had to be that black girl in this book I had to own my story enough to say I believe that it's profound and I believe that it's commonplace it's both necessary and completely unnecessary so what I what I understood about that responsibility was that no one else could help me make that claim in the book. Like X wasn't going to be able to do it. Jay wasn't going to be able to do it. My mother wasn't going to be able to do it. I had to be the one to say my story is important and it belongs to everybody else. And it felt like standing in the center was like screaming that, like yelling it from the top of my lungs. Mm. And so I just I just had to at, at the risk of writing a memoir and that is slightly narcissistic. And, and if, you know, at best, extremely navel gazing, it felt like that needed to happen to own that space, to own a space that I don't feel really exists. Like the confessionalist died. And when people name who came after them, it's all white women, which is crazy, right? right. When you think right. about the black women that have been writing, like, think about Audre Lorde. If you think about Tony K. Bambara, who wasn't a poet, but still, right? Like, these are women who are writing from the depth of emotion, who are thinking about confession from a totally different perspective, not as something that, like, you give to God, but it's something that you give to yourself. Mm-hmm. And no one is owning that space because that language isn't being offered to that space. There's no one saying like, I go here, this is my space. I write about trauma and -hmm. what about it? And I'm, and I'm better than you. I just think (laughs) it had to be. (laughs) (laughs) It's just so infuriating. It's so infuriating to, to look at all these books that are, have pink covers and, you know, like, you know, fucking museum paintings on them. And none of them are written by Black women. Black women write about 
the feminine mystique and they write about, you know, spirituality and the, the depths of mysticism and their books are all in black and gold. Like they're not being understood as part of the the sort of like social canon of, of women's literature. Or the, and it's absurd to me because that's all I, that's what I read. And like, that's how I got to this book. Mm-hmm. Talk on that because it's like, you have a, a group of people saying that these stories that Black women have and own are not important. Mm-hmm. You know, like those things don't happen to y'all. You know, what is mm-hmm. love? Like, you know, mm-hmm. they, they don't see us as people who want to be in love. Like that's mm-hmm. never equated. Correct. Only, yeah. only to be used. And yeah, exactly. We don't even get to be seen as heartbroken. We just get to be seen as broken fundamentally. Right. Like in nothing. And that's a, it, what I thought it was interesting about your question about other people coming in to the narrative or the outside people is that when I think of the outside people, I'm thinking about social like social structures. Right. And and systems and like the, the language of systems, because we can't really escape systems, but the language of systems and how we talk about them. And to an extent, those systems are all there. Like you can see them in the book, right? I can see them in the book, call some of them out. But for the most part, I don't feel like I need to rely on a critical analysis of our political state in order to to explain what it feels like to be brokenhearted as a Black woman. And I think that distinction is important because our livelihoods are like inextricably tied to these systems. And part of what writers do is we have to offer imagination and you have to be able to imagine a world where that noise, the noise of these frameworks and these systems can be muted, even if only to tell a story about these systems and frameworks. Yeah. Um, So choosing to be with someone for very specific reasons is very personal and also a personal choice. You know, but as a queer person of color, did you ever feel like you had or did you have to make any sacrifices um, in terms of allowing what's permissible for a relationship for, for it to work for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that if I had been ready and willing to live as my queerest self and to live my life the way that I live it now, I would never have dated X. And I don't think that I would have ended up in that relationship. And I think there was a big part of me at that age that didn't want to be in a queer relationship because I knew that to sort of approach queerness is to approach a level of vulnerability and a level of um, sensitivity that I what did not feel safe enough in my life to, to go near. I think... What was missing from my life at that time when I wasn't willing to sort of like embrace queerness was softness and safety. And I feel like growing up in a homophobic homophobic society, having parents who, you know, are working on it. <laughs> They're trying in these old Caribbean people. I never, I didn't feel like I had the right to live in my queerness because I understood intuitively that like me and the people like me were against me is because they didn't or were against my queerness is because they didn't feel free enough to live in their queerness. So I didn't feel like I had permission, but I think over the last four or five years, I started to just recognize that like, if I was going to be in a relationship and choose another partner, that I would be looking for vulnerability and softness and space to grow and all these other things, things that at least in my experience could really only be found for me in a queer relationship. So once I knew what I needed and what I was looking for, I guess I felt like I had no choice. Mm. Like I had to be with a person who was not a cis heterosexual man. When you look at your life now, you know, especially in this new year with everything that has come for you and living with this, with this knowledge of, of self Mm -hmm. and 
aging, you know, like as you think about how you age in the future, what does that growth look like for you? Like, what does that freedom in that self, you know, like when you imagine like, mm-hmm. I done got booed up, I'm engaged, I, mm-hmm. I, I got a book out, like, mm-hmm. you know, like what would that future look like for the, the, the coming years for you and your queer self? What does that feel like? I think it's just to continue living in my truth. Like being with my partner has helped me to unmask and um, stop performing and be more present with myself and more present with the people that I love. And what I really want for myself over the next you know, decade is to continue on this path of like saying, fuck it. Like I don't, like I, Fuck it, I can do better. Fuck it, I have better options. Um, because I think something that has plagued me for such a long time is feeling like I am like stuck or that I don't have options. Like I have to do this one thing that's been put in front of me or I have to do this thing in the way that someone else told me that I have to do it. And I'm starting to feel more brave and more willing to say, actually, none of this doesn't matter to me (laughs) Um, or or I don't want to do this or this doesn't feel good. And it's been exciting to actually use that language with people to say to someone like, this would be okay with me and this would not, I don't want this to happen. I don't, I don't like this. Um, And I just want more of that for myself. Yeah. I I think when I came into my thirties, I am 35 (laughs) um that's when I felt like and I am a Libra so Libras like to be liked yeah it's like like world peace Mm -hmm. so you know that's when I stopped be like you know what I have a whole child Mm -hmm. I cannot let this child see that you know his mom is a pushover right just like be you know okay he sure whatever why not right think setting setting that boundary for yourself is very important and you know it's always easier said than done but I think um as we as we mature as our like as we age Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah we we tend to you know like how we shed our friends friends have seasons in our lives Mm -hmm. that also comes with age Mm -hmm. and I think you know when when I was reading your memoir, I asked Veronica, so how, you know, how in my head, like, I think she is like, you know, at that turning point of like, she's in her like thirties. Mm-hmm. I when we looked up your age, I'm like, yes, it feels like, you know, almost a second coming of age, kind of like mm-hmm. you know, better to yourself. Yeah. And people that have known you for a very long time, mm-hmm. like, look, this is me now. And this is, you know, this is where we're at. So meet me here or bye. Yeah. Oh, and it that to me that is so powerful, like setting setting that, you know, that mindset for yourself and seeing yourself as as this person, like this mm-hmm. whole person. Because mm-hmm. I think other people live their whole lives not even realizing that. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I would I- like to meet you when you're 40. Yeah, me too. When you turn mm-hmm. 40. Cause I'm 40. I had to remember how old am I? I'm 40. <laughs> and I feel like there's this switch that goes off and you're just like, no, that, that mm-hmm. no gets harder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, would, I would like to have the privilege of meeting you at 40 and 50 and just seeing you like, oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like the train that I'm on now is exactly that. Like I'm, you know, at the top of my thirties, I'm 31, I think. I think I'm 31 (laughs) and I feel myself as time just goes forward, like becoming more, yeah, saying no harder and harder every time it's a harder no. And I think to something that you said, Veronica, like what I love the most about learning new things about myself is that and going through transitions is that you know exactly when they're happening. Like some, you don't always, but when you do, it's so special. Sometimes you just know that you are at a precipice or you're at a turning point 
And that's why I ended dyscalculia the way that I did. And, and it was a, it was a very much a choice. Um, I think I could have made a different choice that I think more people would have liked, but this was the choice that I needed to make. Um, I ended it that way because I remember that day so clearly. I remember calling one of my best friends as I was smoking a cigarette outside of this hotel. And I was like, this is it. Like I just leveled up. <laughs> I just went, I just went a level up and I'm a, I'm a different, I'm a different bitch now. Like you can't, nobody can touch me the same way they were touching me before. This It's different over here. Right. And <laughs> I needed to end the book there because that was the full circle for me. That was bringing it to, to a close, being able to say I'm different and I know it. Mm-hmm. And I can't wait to show you all who I am now. I could have ended it at, you know, the end of the relationship with X, but I took us on a whole new relationship real quick in the last like 10 pages, just so I can make that statement that like, I'm a different bitch now. And I really, I enjoyed that choice. Yes. We enjoyed it too. Yes. <laughs> I was like, yes. Because, <laughs> like, you know, it, and it's, I think it's important too, you know, for, you know, especially for you know, queer people of color, women of color, mm-hmm. black women to like know that this this can be you too. Mm-hmm. Like it can happen for you. Mm-hmm. Like it's a possibility. Yeah. You have to stop on that heartbreak. Mm-hmm. You know, like, we are redeemable. And that's we, right. Exactly that. Build and it's and it's fly and it's good as fuck when it happens. That's right. That's right. You deserve that. And then the people that would be reading this would also deserve to know that they can also do it. That's right. Especially that they're redeemable, for sure. Yes. Um, You know, when when we when people would write memoirs, they say, you know, you you go through experiences twice, Mm -hmm. experience it and then you write about it. Mm -hmm. Were there any like realizations um, that you may not have had before writing you know, and completing this memoir? Yeah, I mean, I started writing this memoir uh, maybe six weeks after the breakup happened. So I was still very much in it at the very beginning, but I rewrote it about, I rewrote it 10 times. So by the time I got to like the sixth or seventh draft, I had been processed this thing, right? I kind of like threw the diary pages out. Like, we don't need those. We're not doing journal here, right? Um, and I think what I, what I learned about myself was that I did not get what I needed as a child in order to, uh, be a healthy adult, but that I figured it out anyway. And I'm proud of that. But at the same time, it was very painful in writing this book and going back in time to look at all the ways that I had been abandoned by our education system, by our mental health systems, um, and how much those systems were not set up for me to succeed. And I don't think that I, I knew that before I wrote this book, but I don't think that I saw it as clearly as I did it after. And I don't necessarily know what that means or, or what it changed for me, but I know that I have a clearer understanding of where I need to, of what I need to give myself, the kind of accommodations I need to give myself because of the accommodations I didn't get. Yeah, I was, when I was reading this book, I I worked in education for a long time and it made me think about how easy it is for Black girls to get overlooked within the system because, Mm -hmm. you know, they they are easy to just kind of like write it off as, Oh, this this uh this child just has behavior issues, you know, like she just need to learn how to get it together and fly straight and then mm-hmm. yeah, right? Yeah. There's all these other things as we've seen in your book where these there are these huge holes that if someone just took the time, if somebody really like looked at you with the magnifying glass that they look at everybody else, mm-hmm. that it would have been 
figured out very early on. And it's mm-hmm. one of these books where it's like, I would highly re- recommend it not only for young people to read, but also for educators and for parents. Like mm-hmm. everybody should read this book because you can get something from it on every single different level. But in regards to, you know, the things that get missed in Black girls' lives, like it definitely uh, resonated with me on that. Yeah. I started uh, reading Build Yourself a Boat immediately after finishing (laughs) your memoir. Yeah. Uh, And I was struck by like this callback between the two books in the very Mm -hmm. first poem, Lost Poem 4, Rx Sets the Stage, which you placed your memoir on as you begin speaking about the time you spent in the psych war and being able to charm your way out of anything, Mm -hmm. um, including the seven days suggested stay. Mm -hmm. What do you feel you were finally able to speak about in this memoir that you had not covered in your poetry collection? Yeah, I mean, I was able to take those themes and really flesh them out. Um, One thing that I love about being a writer is I had a a professor once tell me that um, every artist has a hole and that hole is their story and they're all everything that they write comes from that hole it's just a different path back to the hole everything that you write um and and i feel like these two books together really exemplify that right like prove that what well, what he said is that every artist is making the same thing over and over again. You're making the same piece of work over and over again. When you do it in different genres and different iterations, it lives a different life, right? It takes on something different. So I love that I was able to build on the themes and build yourself a boat and through narrative text and through narrative lyric, lyric, be able to like really flesh it out and sort of explain myself and 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 say things that I what that I wouldn't say in poet poet in poetry or poetic form um because the way that I treat the poetic line is a little bit different than the way that I treat like the nonfiction line yeah. uh, what's the biggest affirmation that you receive when you found yourself working in this art form that surrounds you with language mm, the biggest affirmation I don't know I've 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 been so lucky actually when I reflect on it. I feel really privileged. I've been affirmed in a lot of ways. But I'll say, I'll say this. I got an email from a person, I won't say who it was because I don't like to flex too much. <laughs> um when dyscalculia came out. And somebody that I really admire and really look up to and have been looking up to since I was like 18 years old. She's an incredible poet. Um, very, very, very accomplished, very wonderful. And she emailed me out of the blue. We'd never met, never spoken. I couldn't imagine that she would ever have thought of me and affirmed not just the work, but the craft and was like, the way you executed this, like the way you did this book makes me proud. And that was some of the greatest affirmation I've ever gotten, especially when it comes from black women, you know, like, cause you know, they're they not going to lie to you. They won't lie. <laughs> might tell you, might tell you the truth, but I, I won't tell you a lie. Um, that was probably some of the greatest affirmation that I've gotten. And generally speaking, I feel like in the poetry community in particular, I get a lot of affirmation from the women of color and just getting to be around them and known by them and loved by them is affirmation enough. Mm. that's a blessed circle to be in yeah um so you know this is um one of our one of our last questions mm-hmm. you you touched it you know you touched on it earlier and you were talking about these systems you know speaking about mental health services I'm you know I work in as a healthcare professional reading mm-hmm. your book um and anytime I read a book that's about human experience especially you know, something that I see in the hospital really mm-hmm. knocks in my heart, you know, to be more compassionate and to apply it within what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mental health services is a privilege not many people have access to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, especially in communities of color, you know, we have poverty, misinformation, mm-hmm. and so many more barriers in acquiring these agencies. When trying to obtain such help, especially for children, what do you hope for, you know, the future 
in view of equity when it comes to mental health services? You know, I just want Black kids to have literally everything they need. Like, give every single one of them a screening. Make sure the person doing the screening is Black. Give every single one of them a therapist. Make sure the therapist is Black. Make sure the therapist has been trained to work with Black children, even though the therapist might be Black. They still need that training. Um, put, Put kids in places where they can thrive. Understand that they have distinctions, right? So a kid that has extreme trauma under the age of seven is not like a kid under the age of seven who doesn't have extreme trauma. Make sure that the kid with trauma is getting the education that they need and that the kid without trauma is getting the education that they need, right? Like make make useful distinctions, not divisions among children, but useful distinctions. They can be in the same classroom and get two different educations, right? I think what I want is for young Black kids to feel like their mental health is a priority for the people around them, that it's just as important as whether or not they turned in their homework, just as important as whether or not they have a hall pass, right? Just as important as whether or not they don't fight or get on the right bus in the morning. The things that, you know, the kind of emphasis that we put on penalizing children for being children, I want that energy to go to understanding our children and giving them the kind of mental health care that they need so that they can make good choices, healthy choices in their actions so that they don't have to be penalized and punished. I think that's that's what I think about. Pavone, we are at the point of our conversation where we like to ask all of our guests this question. Uh, You have two choices. Mm -hmm. Uh, One is we would like to know your top five favorite books of all time. Or... or (laughs) The top five books that you are really excited about that you want people to know that is out there that you want them to get their hands on. Um, so it's it's up to you. And okay. to know for those who are listening that this is not set in stone, uh, that she might get off the Zoom call and be like, fuck that list. I had something else. <laughs> right. Um, but in this moment, this is what you are, yeah. what you are willing to share with us. You know, because we can't keep you here all night talking about all of this. Because we can. We can. We can. But we love it so much. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. All right. I think I'm going to take the second option. All right. So I'm going to plug a young woman, a young poet. Her name is Courtney Faye Taylor. Her book is named Concentrate. It's a beautiful book. Uh, that reflects on a really important time in history and really important person in history. Um, And I I really admire it. I admire its form and what it aspires to do. Um, I'm going to plug another poet, Safia El-Hilal. Her book is uh, For Girls Who Never Die. Uh, I'm sorry. No, it's called Girls Who Never Die. Um, And let me think the last one. I forget the name of this book. Um, gosh, what's this man's name? Do you remember the name of the book? No, I'm forgetting it. It's really upsetting me. <laughs> um, or what it's about? Yeah, it just came out. It's a fiction book about um, a man who gets lost in the internet. And it's by a white man, which I'm remiss to plug, but... <laughs> So why don't I do this? Why don't I say a book that I'm reading that I really uh, that I really love and enjoy? And I've been reading The Salt Eaters by Tony K. Bambara again. And at first it was like, I was like, I don't know if I can get into this. But by page 50, I was completely bought in and I'm like really excited to get through it. That's what's up. We're not going to hold you because we know you you have other things that you need to do. Uh, but we just want to say thank you so much for sharing this space, talking about this uh, beautiful book of yours. We cannot wait to see where this book and, and anything else that you do leads you in this life. Thank you so much. This was a really a pleasure. I really enjoyed your questions. I really did. And I'm excited to hear the episode. Right. Thanks. Come on. You know, thank you for talking tenderly about all the things that you talked in your book um it really touched my heart and you know I'm sure all the readers that have had a pleasure to read your book feels the same 
Um, it's vulnerable. It's, you know, with the soft and tenderness, I think you've you've captured it. And the the art that you do in talking with trauma, I really, really, really appreciate it. So thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed our show. Our show has been produced and edited by Preston Long. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast. Our theme song you've been nodding your head to is by Sean Kantrowitz. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Sean Dammit. That's S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T. Follow us on Instagram at The Vulgar Geniuses. Bye!